0: Good afternoon, welcome to all of you. Thank you for being here, even on preparation day. And uh, I want also to welcome all those that are at the present time watching uh, our presentations and also those that will be watching uh, throughout the upload system after we are done. Today we come to the end of our seminar. We have been dealing with the issue of unity in the church. There have been four presentations. You can go and review them at your leisure and repeat them. Once that they are placed on the web, on the site of the village church. They tell me that they will be doing that next week, so you will have all the different seminars all packed together Uh, so you can see them uh, from the beginning to the end if you so desire to do. Our seminar was on the unity of the church in a special way, the unity of the Seventh-day Adventist church. We had four presentations. In the first presentation, I shared my own personal life experience with the unity of the church, that in a very succinct way, it was an experience of Almost perfect, as perfect as you could uh, perceive as a child and as an adoles- adolescent um, I- I- back in those days. I saw a church united all pastors, all teachers, all members, all thinking and doing. Uh, and experiencing Christianity in the, sa- in the same way. There were two churches. One church was the Catholic church. The other church was the Adventist church. The true church was the Adventist church because we followed the Bible. The Catholic church were, was not the true church because they followed tradition. That was my perception. Then in my life, I came to little by little. As I grew, I moved. I came here. I taught at the seminary began to learn that there is not such a thing as an Adventist unity, as there is not such a thing as a, a Christian unity. So there is a state of this unity uh, in order to I mean, and when I am talking disunity, I am not talking disunity in a local church because one member is mad with another one because of the color of, uh, I don't know, the drapes uh, or whatever. Uh, I am talking about serious divisions, uh, even when we are all united and we love each other and we embrace each other or we embrace back in the time uh, prior to the pandemic. Uh, But... uh, even when we were a united congregation, we will not, we were not, and we are not united in the way we think and we and we believe. I mean, in terms of our relationship with God, that's the dis- disunity. And so, in order to actually deal with that, we went through the history of. Adventism and the history of Adventism also reveal that Adventism began with a strong unity, a unity that came from the discovery of a complete system of truth in the Bible, and that propelled them into mission, and that mission required organization, and that was the reason why we became a church because we have a mission, but the mission came because we have a message, and the message was because we discovered a system to bring all the teachings of the Bible together, and that had a great, great power that motivated our pioneers. But then, with the passing of time, laziness came, new generations, they came into the church through a cultural experience, but without going to study the Bible, discovering the principles or pillars of the Adventist faith, and they began to do something that we do these days very easily, which is cut and paste, cut and paste, cut and paste. You read something, you put it in here, you think this is the truth, it comes to you, and then you preach about it. Cut and paste, but not going to the Bible. So the Sola Scriptura principle, little by little, began not to be denied officially. We, oh yeah, only the Bible. Only the Bible. But we don't read the Bible, so it cannot be your authority. That's what happened. Then, in the third presentation, what we did was to go to see what happens when we read the Bible. Why we read it in different ways. Why Christians read the Bible in different ways. And so we discovered that we work with what we have already treasured in our minds. And then when we read, it's a combination of what we read and what is in our mind and pop, It our, our, our mind just works like that, like you need input to the computer and the application and the two together makes a product the same way our minds work. So what we understand, what you understand is different because you have an experience that is different. So whoever is listening to me will understand what I am saying in different ways. So I have to be as much clear as I possibly can so that I will give you the presuppositions that you need to have in order to understand what I am trying to do. That is why I actually I am doing this review. But let's move on. In, uh, and so these presuppositions, we said that there are a lot of presuppositions, but there are some few presuppositions that are very broad. And because they are very, very broad, they are very influential, that shaped the way in which we think. And it is at that level that Adventists began. Those presuppositions for the Adventists were the Sola Scriptura principle and then what they call the pillars of the faith, the sanctuary, the Sabbath, the three angels' messages, the law, and the non-immortality of the soul. Those five basic biblical teachings that are broad, enriched, and that are always present when we try to understand the Scripture and what God has revealed are the presuppositions on which, in which they build. Then we discover that Christianity, from the beginning, before we w- came into the scene of Christianity, interpreted all these ideas from philosophy. And those philosophical interpretations are completely in the opposite side of those that are in the Bible. We will review those things in this presentation. Then in the fourth presentation yesterday, we went to see what happened in the Christian world and how these presuppositions were taken from uh, philosophy, Plato and Aristotle, by the um, first... uh, in the first century, second century, by the so-called fathers of the church. And then they began to uh, understand Christianity in that way, and little by little, what we call these days as the Catholic Church began to develop. Although the Catholic Church begins in the fourth century, this process began much earlier. Even in the time of Christ when Paul was writing these ideas were entering into the church and the apostle was trying to uh, steer Christians clear from the uh, infringement of those ideas into the Christian community in the Bible. So today what we are going to do is to give you a very succinct way as a way of introduction of how this works, the Sola Scriptura, when we apply these principles uh, to the interpretation of Christianity and to the interpretation of um, Adventism. In a sense, when we apply the Sola Scriptura scriptura principle to uh, the Bible, We are bringing the unity or allowing the unity of Christianity to occur. So this is not just the unity of Adventists. What happens is that in Christianity, only today, only on Christianity today, only the Adventists are claiming to build on the Sola Scriptura. The evangelicals may claim that, but if you go to ask the theologians, the theologians will tell you, well, no, we do not do it only on the basis of the Bible. It is not possible to do it. And you know they are right. If you want to be an evangelical, you cannot do it with the Bible and the Bible only. You need philosophy. Why? Because the Protestants never changed those presuppositions. They continue to build their theories on the basis of uh, philosophy. But if you want to be an Adventist, you can do it. Because our pioneers and our church was actually grounded and founded and created and our mission on the basis of the interpretation of those first principles that they call the pillars of the church. Now... The divisions in Adventism are not uh, minor, are major, and mirror the divisions in Christianity at large. So on one side you have classical theology, which you find there the Catholics and the Evangelicals, and Evangelical Adventism is there. So there are a lot of Adventists. I think that there is a, a great majority by these days because there has been like a century in which this process has been going in which the, the, the central issue for most of those Adventists and leaders is justification by faith, salvation, worship, and that's it. And they arrive to those ideas with, you know, kind of reading here and there in the Bible and reading a lot of things about these things in, in theology. And so that's the way they... They believe. The problem is that these evangelicals are building the theology of the evangelicals, are building on the presuppositions of that come from philosophy that they just cut and paste from the Catholics. They came out of Catholicism, but they cha- challenged the Pope and they challenged the um, uh, the meritorious works, that it is by faith, and praise the Lord and praise uh, Luther for his great work on doing that, but when they came to interpret these things, they did that by going to the Bible, by reading the Bible from the lenses that came from classical theology. But alas, philosophy changed. And classical philosophy was kind of criticized by modernity. And so modernity came with, for instance, the uh, doctrine of evolution, instead of creation. Before all scientists, together with the church, they believe in creation. But then, in the 19th century, 1848, evolution came. And so, philosophy began to change. And there are a lot of things that change. And so, modern theology, progressive theology follows. And we have progressive Adventism as well. Progressive Adventists are Adventists that are convinced not only that we cannot apply the sola scriptura principle, but that the Bible is not a book of revelation, direct revelation, verbal revelation. I am not talking the verbal theory of revelation. I am saying that God is not speaking through the Bible. But then remember, remember that yesterday I was talking about timelessness and how Augustine said that God cannot speak in a sequence because he speaks all you know, simultaneously because he doesn't have time. But your God speaks. My God speaks in a sequence, in words, in your words, in Hebrew, in Greek, in, in Spanish, in English, in all languages. You see, there is a difference. But these Christians, they say, we are Christians, but God cannot speak. God can only act and can act in a, an instant. You see, it's instantaneous because, uh, you know, it's, it's the only way in which uh, a God that does not experience time can actually be experienced. So this is the division that exists outside and in our own church. So, to overcome the Christian divisions and bring unity to Christianity and Adventism at the same time, we must apply the Sola Scriptura principle to the interpretation of the macro-hermeneutical principles of Christian theology. Those, uh, Those principles are these ones, the principle of reality, God, human nature, the world. And then the principle of articulation that it is how all these things relate together, how God relates to humans, how God relates to the world, and how the humans relate to the world, you know, how all things connect and act together in harmony. So these are the principles. Now, the Protestant Reformation has never been finished because Scripture has always been under the rulership of philosophy. The so-called the servant of theology, that is philosophy, I mean, the servant of theology is philosophy, and the queen of the sciences is theology. So basically, people say, yes, philosophy is there, but it is the servant of theology. So theolo- uh, philosophy just does what the queen wants. Yes, of course. But when the servant, dictates the principle of interpretations to the queen, who is the queen? If the queen cannot interpret by herself but has to follow the dictates of the servant, actually the servant is the queen. So, to free theology and Christianity from philosophical slavery, we need to apply the sola scriptura principle to the interpretation of the first principles. Now, when the pioneers discover, I mean, experience the great disappointment, the next day they came to the realization that what was supposed to happen in 1844 was not the coming of God, Christ, to earth, but it was the passing of Christ. From the uh, in the sanctuary, from the holy place to the most holy place, an historical event in heaven that's impossible for Christian theology. God cannot do that. there is no heaven. we already saw that God does not experience time, so there can be no such a thing that's for you, Adventist. a clear explanation why nobody else actually believes in the investigative judgment. It is just impossible. The presuppositions does not allow for such an event to be real. It must be an illustration of the salvation and the glory of God and the justice of God and the love of God, but it cannot be understood as an actual real event. For us, it was, and it is a principle is at the foundation of what we believe it is what started out the discovery of the pillars of adventism and of the complete system so this idea in itself the pioneers had completely overturned christian tradition overhead it is the complete uh, uh, i mean opposite They didn't know this, but this is what they actually have done. And we Adventists have done that without knowing it. And I didn't know that until I had the privilege to study philosophy, discover what they were doing, study, study theology, and see how these things have worked in the history of Christianity. And I say, whoa, look at this. Now, let's move to the next point. When I was doing my PhD at the seminary here, I began to comprehend the monumental consequences of this apparently irrelevant issue. What is the issue? That when I go to philosophy, not the Bible, when I go to philosophy and I read about reality, I find two contradictory interpretations. I discovered that like three months before coming here to Andrews. Actually, I talk about that in I think the first presentation. Now, one says that reality is timeless, static and the other, it says that they are wrong, the original philosophers and that reality is temporal historical so there you are. What do you do? Philosophers contradict themselves. That's good, right? <laughs> because I am not trembling there. I mean, this is philosophy. It's more or less what's happened with the pandemic now. You know, or you have all these experts. I hear people commenting, and they are really, really very disappointing Disappointed. This commenter. Commentators, because uh, they see all these contradictions. One says one thing, the other says another thing, then comes the politician, the politicians go uh, with this kind of advice, the others go with the other kinds of advice, and science that is supposed to be exact is not exact. In philosophy, that's what I found. So, is reality timeless and historical as tradition teaches? or is it temporal and historical as contemporary philosopher uh, Martin Heidegger suggested? To me, at that time, when I was doing my doctoral dissertation, that put Adventists on the balance for me. I didn't say anything to anybody, and rarely I speak about this, but this is what happened. Why? Why? Because I knew very well that Adventism, Ellen G. White, understand Christ and Christianity as history. That's obvious. And so, if reality is timeless and Plato is right and tradition is right, Adventism is wrong. You understand what I am saying? Because investigative judgment cannot be. I mean, if I believe that, that, if I believe that reality is timeless, lot, I cannot actually, unless I have some problems in my mind, go the other way, because this is a clear contradiction of terms. So my point was, okay, now I can argue for, from Heidegger, right? Heidegger, new philosopher, but why Heidegger is going to be right? He's a, a human being with the same limitations that is other. You can argue and pile argue, arguments, but then there c- could be a, a, a third one that comes and says another thing. So then I remember my Adventism and I said Scripture has to decide. So I wrote my dissertation on this point, on what Moses says in Genesis 3:14 and following. And through doing that, I arrive to the satisfactory conclusion that in this particular passage that all theologians agree is the place where the Bible speaks about reality, but they say the Bible speaks about reality, but that reality is explained by Plato. So Plato brings the understanding, and there is no understanding about reality in that expression in Genesis 3.14. My argument is that, yes, there is something that Genesis 3.14 says about reality of God, and that is that God is capable to experience time. So the conclusion was, for me, that only Adventism can represent true Christianity and is the only Christian church on earth because we are able to understand God within the parameters of what he is really because it's based on the revelation that comes directly from him. But I am not going to go through uh, my dissertation with you because it is really, really an unfriendly book for laypersons. So, uh, thinking on that, how in the world do I communicate to you and to pastors this without requiring them uh, to read my dissertation? I mean, this is something that came to me like 30 years ago when I started uh, teaching. And so I began to look in the Bible for something that will explain to me where these principles are more clear and explain in, uh, in ways that uh, every person that has no philosophical training can understand them. And I found them very, I mean, in the same book, in the same in the book of Exodus but when we go to chapter 25 verse 8 and God commands this very same God that revealed himself in Exodus 3:14 then he says I want to come and live with you you see this is a God that is saying in order for me to be your God I need to be with you in space and time so The sanctuary is the key, as Ellen G. White says, in Scripture to understand the reality of God. Now, can we argue for the sanctuary besides Ellen G. White? I mean, of course, you are going to tell me, if you are not an Adventist, if you are an evangelical or a Catholic, they are going to say, well, you are saying that because you are an Adventist, and so you are taking it from LNG White, and this is bias, and you are not prop- a proper theologian, uh, and so forth, and you are criticizing others for having biases coming from Plato, but now you have this bias from LNG White because your mother taught you these things, and so uh, they are going to try to rel- relativize these things. That's what I am saying. But if you go to the Bible, the sanctuary is not a minor issue. It's not like the interpretation of uh, Daniel eleven forty and followings, verse forty and following. If you, if you know what I mean, you know. The, 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 well, okay, who is the king of the north there? Who is the king of the south? Okay, it's important. But if that is wrong, the, the entire edifice of Christianity is not going to fall. This a point. Is important for the time of the end, of course, for us now, but not for the edifice of Christianity. You understand what I am saying? But if we miss the reality of God, the entire edifice of Christianity could fall or could be misconstructed. And so when you go to the, the Bible, the sanctuary, I mean there are entire books about this. Exodus, Leviticus, Hebrews. When you go Uh, to the Gospels. Jesus is where? In the sanctuary. There are events, historical events, that have to do with the sanctuary. When you go to Revelation, the sanctuary is there. When you go to the prophecies, the sanctuary is there. When you go to uh, Psalms, the sanctuary is there. I am being reminded of uh, my friend Dr. Davidson great biblical scholar that actually is about to publish a monumental book uh, by the BRI, I think it's the BRI that is going to publish a book on the sanctuary. And there is a lot of things in the Bible about the sanctuary. Why Christians don't use that? Because of timelessness. But we can use all those things. So, we are not going to challenge them, but I say, okay, 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 okay. So, reality could be timeless or historical. You make this sense based on timelessness. Okay, good for you. Good for you. We are going to do something that you haven't done, and nobody has done. We are going to assume that God is able to act in space and time directly, as the Bible says, and we are going to develop an alternative way to understand Christianity. By the way, we are in post-modernity. And post-modernity is free to new interpretations of anything. You can make your own private interpretation. And everybody says, okay, good for you. You are right. Okay. So we as Adventists say, we as a community... Believe that the Bible is the Word of God and we are going to develop an understanding of Christianity on the basis of the clear presuppositions and structures as God revealed them in the Bible. The sanctuary, big thing, big thing, is not more important than the cross. No, it is not. It is the center of everything. But there is a lot of information about the sanctuary and the sanctuary and the cross belong together And you cannot understand one without the other, which tells you that there are connections. And there are connections that are made in the text and not that we bring to the text. So that's some of the things that we need to have in mind. It's extensively addressed in Old Testament and New Testament. Besides, we as Adventists have the testimony of uh, Ellen White regarding these things. So there it is, a complex structure connecting many parts, extensively addressing the Old and New Testament and the testimony of Ellen G. White. Now, let's go to the sanctuary and follow with me a little bit how to look at the sanctuary. Because when I speak about the sanctuary, you and those that are viewing this uh, through streaming and YouTube video will, if you're Adventists, think on the doctrine of the sanctuary. I am not thinking of the doctrine of the sanctuary. I am thinking of the reality of the sanctuary. Okay? The reality of the sanctuary in the Old Testament and the reality of the sanctuary in heaven of course a doctrine comes out of there and we find those revelations are reflections on those revelations as a doctrine but the point in here is that there is a reality that is the sanctuary So, the meaning of the sanctuary is not primarily a building, because when we are talking about the sanctuary, we speak about a building. You know, the the court, uh, all the furniture, the Most Holy, the Holy, all these things, Uh, the, the building. But the sanctuary is not primarily a building, but a being, God. The meaning of the sanctuary includes the building, of course, but it's grounded on the being that dwells in it. You see, you cannot understand the the building without the being, but you cannot understand the being without the building because it is in the relationships that this being creates through the capabilities and the furnishing of that edifice that his relationship with us have been developed and understood in the old testament and in the new testament now as we move forward the sanctuary then is the house of being i say being just to emphasize reality but it is the house of god the sanctuary is the house, is the palace of God. The God of Scripture dwells in a building in space and time. This is the opposite of the Greek interpretation. The God of Christianity cannot dwell in a building because he is timeless and spaceless. They will, through their interpretation and exegesis, say that the sanctuary is a metaphor for, for the spiritual relationship that we have with God. So this is a mystical reality that the sanctuary is saying. But it has nothing to do with history or real events that God is doing in space and time. That's the way a Christian that works on the basis of timelessness will interpret these biblical passages. But for us they are real. For Moses, they are real. God was there. God acted there. God came when the temple was inaugurated. We have that in Second Chronicles and so forth. Now, God is dwelling there, but God is not limited by that. And that's said in the Bible as well. Because as God says, I want to live with you, you will build a sanctuary, and I will live among them Solomon said when he was praying in 2 uh, Chronicles 6:18 uh, would uh, not even the heavens of the heavens can contain you how this house is going to contain so is not containing god of course not but he nonetheless is living there because then Solomon says when we are you know, if we behave badly you know all prophecies there in that prayer when we behave badly and we are in um, in slavery or a, what is the word captivity and we're we'll in captivity and we will pray toward this house you will hear us because that's where you are So God is there but God is not limited So God is able to act. God is able to be with here. God is able to be Christ. And he is fully Christ, fully man, and yet it's not limited by the humanity. Can you understand that? No. I cannot. Do you feel bad about that? No. This is wonderful. Because that means that he is God. If we were able to understand all these mysteries about God, he will not be God. But he is revealing himself in terms that break down our logical capabilities and yet we are able to understand it. So, what are the results of God being conceived as historical? I am going to give you a few of them. God can reveal himself directly in space and time cognitively. Cognitively, I don't know how to pronounce that in a in way of communicating knowledge by means of words. In other words, we don't need to translate God because God is not able to, word, to talk, you know, in syllables, in sequence. Every time that we speak, we take time. See, I am making this presentation, have 50, 55 minutes, and uh, so that, why do I have time? Because it takes time to speak. And God also has to take time to speak. Otherwise, we will not be able to communicate. That does not limit God. And the Word of God is powerful. But that gives us the, the notion that in the Bible we find the words of God. That when we read the Bible, we are actually having a direct unveiling of the mind of God. This is extraordinary. For me, at least, when I read the Bible, that's the way in which I read it. This is the Word of God. God is directly using this Word, communicating with me, and also using actions and activities that he has done throughout history, beginning with creation and ending with the new creation in which he is doing these things exactly as he wrote them down. This is reality. This is true. Which most Christians do not believe because I didn't say that, but most evangelicals do not believe in creation. So how in the world are you going to have the same God, the same gospel, if you don't believe in creation and you believe in evolution? It's impossible. Now, Scripture becomes the word of God to men and the authoritative source of theological data, of course, because they come from God and not from a pastor. It, estab- it establishes the continuity and harmony on all a New Testament. You see, this is. Oops! Oh, thank you. I am forgetful. Get excited and and don't change the <laughs> the screens here. Uh, yes. Uh, where was I? It establishes the continuity between Old and New Testament. You know, there is no religion that puts the two together. Christianity is New Testament. It's New Testament, and at times some portions, chosen portions of New Testament. Evangelicals mostly Paul and you know Galatians and Romans, but not the entire Bible. That's why (laughs) we don't care much about uh, creation, you see. It could be evolution, but justification by faith. Paul, it it doesn't matter if it is creation, it doesn't matter if it is uh, evolution, but justification by faith is an act of what? It's not an act in history, so it doesn't matter how this thing came to be, but God is communicating from timelessness That's justification with us. The Jews, only Old Testament, Adventist, Old Testament, and New Testament. Why? Because it's the same God. Why? Because God acts in history and does not change. And it is the same. So you see, this is a complete and unique view. There are theologians that agree with this. There are many theologians that agree with many things that we believe. There are many theologians in the tradition of the English Puritans, 17th century, that believe all the doctrines, but neither of them have the structure to put them together, which is the sanctuary understood historically. Mm? Nobody has those things. And nobody actually puts the entire thing in a system to form a church. There is no church representing that. When they go to church, those theologians, they live by other understanding of theology that they do not agree with. And that they have come and say, this is the way it is, the Sabbath. But they, when they go to the church, they keep Sunday. And along these lines. Then there is the issue of the historic, historical acts of God in Christ that become the center of theology. I will come to that later. Since the historical acts of God are salvific, we find the atonement as an historical process. This is very, very important. For the evangelicals, the entire work of salvation started and finished at the cross. it, It is a complete work, and there is nothing before, and there is nothing after that God has done is just that. And we Adventists never believe that. We always believe that there is a process in which God is fulfilling His promise of Genesis three fifteen that He will put enmity and He also will uh, produce the wound uh, to Satan. So there is this salvific Element in the atonement as an historical process, which is completely, completely different from all other Christians, and you can understand why. It is because we understand that God operates historically. When we are going to the investigative judgment, the same thing, investigative judgment is part of the process of the atonement. And of course, when I am saying these things, it's complete heresy to my brothers and sisters in the uh, um, evangelical community. But, (laughs) I'm sorry, but these things are in the Bible and you are not able to see them because you are coming to the Bible with presuppositions that are not grounded on the Bible. And so, we are not going to fight, we are not going to go to a holy war, but we have the freedom to, among ourselves, as Adventists, at least understand these things along these patterns. And then, historicity of god historicity of God also grounds the uh historic, historic, the historicist, thank you. Historicist interpretation of the prophecies. Nobody else interprets the prophecy uh, through the historicist method. We only have that. But the issue is that our historicist interpretation of the prophecy is only an extension of our historicist interpretation of Christian theology. And you see, the second coming of Christ is just the glorious climax of our historicist interpretation of theology. Now, let me kind of move ahead a little bit here and not read these things, but go to the... Okay, here. This is a... um, graphic of what I call the principle of interpretation. The principle of interpretation is and has a center. The center is Jesus Christ. But it articulates things synchronically and diachronically, which means reality is very complex. Historical reality is very complex. And there are levels, and these levels are seen in reality, which basically we here represents at least two and even three. One level of historical reality is you as an individual, So there are a lot of things in the Bible that applies to us individually. But then there is another level in the Bible that applies to us as a society, which is the church. So this is another level. So there is the individual level, the social level, and then there is for us in the Bible the level of the angels and heavens and the other worlds, which is the cosmic And for us, this is a unity. It's a coherent unity. For the Bible is a unity. Heaven and earth, they are connected. When you see the issues in prophecy the Hebrew scholars will tell us that there are movements from heaven to earth and from earth to heaven, and those things are not possible with the classical view of timeless reality that Christianity has adopted. And so when we are talking about the articulation, we are talking about the articulation that God makes of his salvation and his wisdom and his love and his law and his providence in the entire universe. This is a unity, the unity of the universe. But the unity of the universe does not exist. God is working through the plan of salvation, through the atonement process, to bring all things together to Jesus Christ, to the head, in the end of time. That's what is being said, even as part of predestination in Ephesians, Uh, chapter 1, verses 4 to 10. But then, there is always, at each moment of history, a cosmic, a social, and an individual level, and then God begins to connect things historically with events and with prophecy. And so when we go to the Bible and want to connect what the Bible says or want to understand what it applies to us, We have to go to the Bible, see at what level the Bible is speaking, and then to see how those acts of God, creation, Sinai, the cross, investigative judgment, second coming, how all these revelations and activities of God in space and time and even providence affect to what we understand the the Bible and to us as we relate to a God that has revealed himself to us in that way. Um, there are some structural components. And I am going to go, I mean, I can speak literally an hour on all this, uh, but when we are talking about the principle of articulation, the sanctuary and God in the sanctuary includes other things together because the sanctuary and God is only God there sitting in the sanctuary with uh, of things, you know, and nothing happens. But the sanctuary is a house of, uh, of encounter, and that encounter is the covenant. The covenant is the relationship. Think about the sanctuary as a house that somebody is going to have to have a marriage that the Bible speaks uh, talks about as the marriage of the Lamb that is going to happen at the end. This is the sanctuary. But then we are going to go to the heavenly sanctuary and to the holy city, and we are going to see God there. So there is a covenant. There is a promise. God makes promises to us. I will be with you, and we make promises to him. We are going to be faithful to you, to your will, what you have revealed. He will fulfill his promises if we fulfill our promises. There is a conditionality to that, historical conditionality that depends on the faithfulness of God and depends on the faithfulness of you. Just there, I completely changed the understanding of salvation that is only forgiveness. It cannot be only forgiveness because it is the faithfulness of God. But then there is the historical process that occurs in that relationship of which I already spoke. And then there is the centrality of the cross. In that process, Christ came and did something that was so extraordinary in risk of his own divinity that everything before was old. And everything afterwards is new. Everything before was not secure. It was open to Satan attacks. Everything after is secure forever in the victory of the cross. But that's not the centrality of theology. The centrality of theology is not the cross of Christ... The centrality of theology is Christ Himself. Just read John 3:16. Whoever have faith in the cross, no. Whoever have faith in Me. So our faith is given to the living Person of Christ today. This is worship. We are relating with a living God. That's the center of theology. Before creation, in creation, in the Old Testament, in the captivity, at the incarnation, at the cross, in heaven, in the, mo- in the holy place, in the most holy place, during the investigative judgment and when he comes with glory and forever and ever and ever in all the millions of centuries of eternity. Always Jesus Christ is the center and continues to abide forever. That's the way we think. And it's not just the cross. Now, all this centrality can occur because one event. (laughs) And that reaches everything. And will be the wonder of us forever and ever and ever. That's the way in which we can understand God in a deepest way than anybody else. Then it comes the mission. The mission is their unifying thing. So when we are doing mission, what are we doing? We are gathering. We are gathering. We are doing the unity. We are preparing the bride, the church, the pure church that God will come and claim as his own. And then unity will be finally achieved. Ellen G. White says, But God will have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible, the Bible only as the standards of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms. The opinions of learned men The deductions of science, the creeds or decisions of ecclesiastical councils, as numerous and discordant as are the churches which they represent, the voice of the majority, no one nor all of this should be regarded as evidence for or against any point of religious faith. Are we going to be that people? This is the call to the Adventist church. Now, a call to all of us, a call to my colleagues, professors, leaders, in order to bring unity to the worldwide Adventist church and Christianity, we need to have a scholarly articulation and a worldwide ministerial and missionary dissemination of the following steps and commitments And I call all Adventists and all leaders to abide and to put into effect in all the institutions and all the churches and all the levels of administration these steps. First, a complete and total commitment of everyone, every leader to the sola, tota and prima Escritura principles and then from there to the discovery, understanding, and application of the pillars of Adventism as macro-hermeneutical principles, and, with, and united in those two foundational issues to develop, discover, and uh, disseminate the complete and harmonious system of theology and philosophy that it follows from them. And from that to develop ministerial educational missionary paradigms compatible with those first steps to uh, to uh, proclaim the gospel of god to the entire uh, to the entire earth and then to organize the church to develop a biblical ecumenism to the mission of the church when we do that then i think as Ellen G. White said, the prayer of Christ that his church may be one, as he was one with his Father will finally be answered. And the rich dowry of the Holy Spirit will be given, and through its constant supply to the people of God, they will become witnesses in the world of the power of God and to salvation. And in that way, we will really go forward to the finish in no time. May God bless. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.